0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with last night's State of the Union speech by Biden that was unapologetically pro-worker and unflinchingly anti-corporate profiteering as he called for a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. Joining us is Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. We will discuss Biden's criticism of big pharma for price gouging on essential drugs and the need to rein in big tech with stricter antitrust enforcement while going after banks, cable companies and airlines for junk fees. Along with the unfairness of, quote, Americans being played for suckers, Biden also went after our unfair tax system, pointing out that, quote, no billionaire should pay a lower tax rate than a school teacher or a firefighter. Then with tensions rising between the United States and China and the absence of a diplomatic dialogue following Secretary of State Blinken's cancellation of talks with Chinese leaders over the balloon incident, we will speak with Ambassador Chaz Freeman, a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his role in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. The former Director for Chinese Affairs at the United States Department of State, he was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's pathbreaking visit to China in 1972, and we will discuss his article at the American Academy of Diplomacy, U.S.-China policy, a case of self-harm. Then finally, with Turkey's authoritarian leader, Erdogan, shutting down social media sites to blunt criticism of his slow response to the catastrophic earthquakes, we'll speak with Henri Baki, professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean and intelligence, and authored, co-authored and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question with Graham Fuller and Reluctant Neighbour, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. We will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Turkey's Turning Point, What Will Erdogan Do to Stay in Power? And joining us now is Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was the Chief Economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Johnson. Pleasure to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Rob. And President Biden's State of the Union last night struck me as probably the most pro-worker, anti-corporate speech I've ever heard from a U.S. politician, let alone a U.S. president. How did it strike you?
1: I thought it was the most impressive State of the Union address that I have uh, listened to or listened to recordings of in my entire life. I thought that President Biden, I don't think he was necessarily anti-corporate. I think he was anti-unsustainable policies favoring corporations. He talked about Taxes, he talked about energy prices, he talked about drug prices and particularly how they affect elders. He talked about assault weapon bans. He talked he did talk about taxes on the wealthy and taxes on corporations when they were paying zero. If you want to say that's anti corporate, you've got to justify why zero is the right number for those very deep pocketed segments of our society. He talked about the burdens on police. He talked about the accountability that police must, how would I say, accept to do their role properly. He talked about the importance of sustaining Social Security and Medicare. He advocated for a, uh, how we say, reinstatement of Roe versus Wade, which is not really an economic issue. He did talk about what I will call the rebuilding from deglobalization that will create more jobs, create more manufacturing. And he talked about education policies that are required to make the American workforce, what you might call it, the cutting edge of competitiveness in a world economy. All of these things feel like a vision of leadership about proper sustainable balance in a society. They don't strike me as anti one thing or pro another thing other than to restore the imbalances to a place where we're all proud to be Americans.
0: Well, in calling for a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America, there's no question that he criticized Big Pharma. In fact, Big Pharma in itself is a pejorative. He was quite specific about them gouging prices for drugs. He singled out insulin and gave examples of the outrageous profits that they're raking in. He also went after big tech, calling for stricter anti-trust enforcement, went after yep. junk fees, specifically uh, pointing out how banks are ripping off lower-income people with unnecessary fees.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He also talked about gouging cable bills. And actually, I recall when I changed the cable from a really bad cable service to a not you know, not much better cable service, I got a $400 bill for crappy service. And he he mentioned that. Uh, Even concert tickets, airline fees, all these hidden corporate fees. And he culminated it by saying Americans are tired of being played for suckers. So do you think that's going to resonate with blue collar and the workers that Trump managed to peel off from the Democrats?
1: I think it will resonate very powerfully. Donald Trump, as he was running in 20, uh, for the 2016 election, I was in Detroit, where I grew up, and he was running around saying the system is rigged. He was speaking to the Economics Club of Detroit and saying he was ashamed of how the big three automakers had lost jobs in the United States, and in particular in Michigan. And a lot of these people regardless of race or gender, said, this guy is calling out what's out of balance and what's wrong, and they migrated to him. Many of those people, who I'm in contact with because of my involvement in Michigan and Detroit, came on and said, he seduced us and he abandoned us. And as Biden pointed out, the rise in the national debt of almost 25% 25% under those four years, which, by the way, for the most part preceded the onset of the pandemic. Uh, how would I say? People are calling things out when they're out of balance. Trump did some to energize the, what am I call disaffected. I remember watching him at a panel in 2015 in Florida. I was watching on television, and he basically said everybody was cheering for Jeb Bush and booing him in part because Jeb Bush was a great governor. But he said also in part because the people in this audience are the donors, and that's who we have to take on because the donors are, how would I say, distorting our society for themselves. They're buying policy. And people went berserk all over in both parties when he said that. When was the last time somebody took on the Republican National Committee when they were running for the Republican nomination? So there was a wake-up call in Trump, and there was a wake-up call, I guess I would say uh, shocking, when he appeared to seduce and abandon those people he mobilized. But I felt Biden came with a very, very healthy perspective of where and how things are out of balance, and put it, put a vision of what leadership should look like for the next four years.
0: Well, the booing that took place from from the Republicans and Marjorie Taylor Greene screaming out "You liar," etc. One of the main triggers for that booing was when Biden said that a worker at McDonald's who wants to get a better job at Burger King, he can't take the job offer because he's already signed a non-compete agreement. And how wrong <laughs> that is, that you can't, workers can't improve their lives and have better income and better job prospects because the corporations have trapped them in these non-compete agreements. Then you've got a whole bunch of boos from the Republicans who clearly are on... The payroll, aren't they, of corporate America? I mean, why else are they booing? What's wrong? Well, they're not
1: necessarily—they're not literally on the payroll, but their donations are very, very large, particularly in the five twenty-seven. The you know the uh, super PACs and so forth. Uh, so their survival as members of the House or Senate is very dependent upon. Who they get those large donations from? So if you want Bates to say,ing they're they're uh, playing to that piper in those in those and in the comments. Uh, there was another episode I saw where uh, he accused, meaning Biden, accused some of the people on the floor of trying to close down the deficit by rescinding, removing Social Security and Medicare or at least diminishing the payouts for elders and a lot of the Republicans uh, in the aftermath that I saw on television said, show us where we said that we didn't say that he's demonizing us and and they were quite offended there. And that that's a different audience. That's the elder population, not a narrow corporate sector.
0: Well, they also got upset the Republicans, and when I say they're on the payroll, you've corrected me. They, they get donations, but let's face it, our legislatures have been turned into telemarketers. That's all they do all day is dial for dollars. That's our system, and Democrats are involved in it as well. But he did; they were upset when he suggested quadrupling a new tax on stock buybacks, etc. And mm-hmm. how can you dis- how can you disagree with it? He said, I, I think a lot of you at home agree with me that our present tax system is simply unfair. No billionaire right. should pay a lower tax rate than a schoolteacher or a firefighter. That surely has to resonate.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you, how would I say, there are billionaires who do things that are quite, Value-added, meaningful—they've, you know—they're a billionaire for a reason that they satisfy appetites. But let's talk about as a person. If you're worth a billion dollars, you don't need a lot of money to improve your lifestyle. And when hundreds of thousands of people are being squeezed because you don't pay taxes, that's not a very humane economy. And uh, so I can I can how would I say validate. That some billionaires are billionaires because they created wonderful things. But do we need to rebalance through taxation and have, which you might say, a rising tide raise all boats, not just raise the power of a narrow segment of the population enormously?
0: So, just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Rob Johnson, Biden's uh, State of the Union address was followed by the Republican address from Governor Huckabee. used to be the press secretary who lied (laughs) consistently for Donald Trump. She then makes this bizarre speech about the woke running amok in America and the streets of America being taken over by crazy wokeness. I mean, the whole thing was so bizarre. And the Republicans seem to be thinking that they can still push the white grievance card that helped elect Trump. So, what's your sense of the politics of this? Will this new appeal to blue-collar workers and the ones that the white working class that the Democrats lost to Trump. Is Biden's message think more powerful and more appropriate than the Republicans sticking to their white grievance ritual, which Huckabee trotted out last night and DeSantis down in Florida is all about?
1: What I would say is. uh... The experience that I had a couple of days ago was listening to a uh, Substack podcast by Chris Hedges about how the notion of wokeness is irritating people because they see people of color and more women on boards of corrupt companies, but not based on the history of their experience as, say, particularly black people have suffered and women have suffered That they're not exercising that they're joining the club they're not reforming the club when they go on and that that creates a backlash among what you might call the frightened or desperate whites that the that trump and the republicans have appealed to i think those are two different problems i think we do have to work on balance and equity across ethnic race and gender and I think we do have to pay attention to the historic woundedness, particularly that black people have suffered from, to put things back in balance. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. But I do think the, uh, the elites have to, which you might call, bring those progressive and conscious policies from the wounded to bear on what they do in policy, or it will create a backlash. Of what you might call the Trumpian white people, or the type of people that Huckabee was citing as being offended, but I don't think that's where I don't think that's where Biden was. I don't think he was uh, playing only race or gender discrimination. He was talking much more structurally across the whole horizon of where things are out of balance in in creating a vision for where to go and what he will resist.
0: Well, I agree that uh, it's much more powerful to talk to working class voters about, you know, their wallets as opposed to the culture wars. And uh, this this looks like he's laying the groundwork for the 2024 campaign. And there are people like Sherrod Brown and others that are quite vulnerable. And I think this new messaging is going to help, don't you, just in the last minute?
1: I think that he is becoming what I will call the next North Star, and that people can rally around that, and that has a lot to do with broad-based prosperity and correcting the capacity for excessive abuse and violations in the economics realm, in the health realm, in the education realm, and in law enforcement realm, and that... People who rally around this constructive vision, what I call this new North Star, are going to thrive, in my view. It's the most honest presentation I've ever seen a president make about the nature of where we are and what we got to do to correct it. But when the media depends on money, we need people like you to illuminate what's really going on. When Donations matter and politicians' survival depend on money. We're not going to get as good of policies as we should, even with a visionary. And our university experts who are what you might call funded by endowments that come from the wealthy are not going to necessarily illuminate things that an expert for the public good would do. We've got to reduce the role of money in governance. You embed a capitalism in a democracy to create moral legitimacy. But you can't have a market for those democratic apparatus or it destroys the whole thing.
0: Well, Robert Johnson, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: It's my pleasure and uh, keep up the good work.
0: I'm a big
1: fan of all the things that you uh, have created and continue to strive to create for this country and for the
0: world. Thank you, And Again, I've been speaking with Robert Johnson, the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was the chief economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. We're going to take a brief station break. We we're looking into rising tensions between the U.S. and China, and the absence of a diplomatic dialogue, and the extent to which U.S. policy towards China is a case of self-harm. There
2: are union down, but our union's going to break them, slavery chain. Now our union's gonna break on slavery chains. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky, could see every farm and every town. I could see all the people in this whole wide world. That's a union that'll tear the place. just down, down, down. That's a union that'll tear the
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ambassador Chaz Freeman, a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his roles in designating a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system, and in re establishing defense and military relations with China. He has also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge d'Affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing. The former Director for Chinese Affairs at the U.S. Department of State, he was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path breaking visit to China in 1972. And he has an article at the American Academy of Diplomacy, U.S.-China Policy, A Case of Self-Harm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And the president in his State of the Union last night said, we seek competition, not conflict with China. However, Chinese foreign ministry spokespeople are quite angry, and they felt that China was smeared in this speech. What was your reaction?
3: Well, I think competition is, in fact, a euphemism for um, something more than rivalry, an adversarial antagonism uh, that colors the entire relationship and makes it very difficult for the two sides to talk to each other.
0: Well, what your sense is that the relationship is spiraling into a dangerous territory. Just to sort of paraphrase what you spoke to the American Academy of Diplomacy on uh, Tuesday,
3: uh, yes, there's been a, a a constant and very dangerous deterioration in the relationship. That results from many factors. Um, if you read the American press, you would imagine it was all of uh, China's fault. And indeed, the Chinese have uh, been much more assertive and uh, reactive to events than uh, in, now than they were in the past. Uh, but the basic problem is that the understandings that... Uh, enabled the relationship to flourish for 50 years, uh, that enabled the Taiwan issue to be set aside uh, by the Chinese as something non-urgent that they could deal with in due course in um, in crafting a peaceful resolution. All these understandings have decayed or been set aside, uh, and we're now left with a purely military confrontation, and this is the cause of the hostility.
0: And... Does the ascendancy of Xi Jinping have anything to do with this? I mean, who, who's largely driving what you describe as an increasingly ruinous policy? Is it the new leadership, the more bellicose nationalistic leadership, or is it the American military industrial complex looking for a new enemy?
3: Um, I think the new leadership in China uh, reflects the fact that China now has the ability to punch back uh, for many years, it was weak and vulnerable. It lacked wealth and power. Um, and therefore, it was on a, in a very passive, defensive mode. That is no longer the case. If uh, a country insults the Chinese, if uh, if uh, it appears to menace China, China will take counteraction. So that is indeed part of it. Another part of it is, as you suggested, um, that China's become the cure to what I call enemy deprivation syndrome, which is the uh, confusion you feel when you've lost your enemy. Um, We lost our enemy about 30 years ago when the Soviet Union uh, irresponsibly collapsed and uh, left us uh, with no clear foe to concentrate on. Uh, China has emerged... Uh, after a mo- after a couple of uh, uh, decades of uh, focus on Islamist terrorists as the enemy of choice, after all, uh, China is a very now a very scientifically and technologically advanced society, uh, and uh, it's the kind of society you might want to use an F-22 against, whereas uh, bearded men in caves in Waziristan are unreachable by high-tech weaponry like that. And so China is, uh, yes, the enemy of choice.
0: But if there were a military confrontation, it would seem to me that China could do massive damage to the U.S. fleets and military deployed in the neighborhood now, where we've made a deal with, with the Philippines, Space is not bases, I'm not sure what that means. But has anybody really gamed out what a conventional war would, would be like if the U.S. and China came to clash over Taiwan?
3: There have been many, many war games, um, both classified and unclassified. Um, they tend to show uh, some uh, uh, consistent results. First, uh, Taiwan's democracy and prosperity are utterly destroyed uh, second um, both the united states and china suffer massive losses at sea uh, and there is often the game results in nuclear ex- escalation um, the, uh, there is one game that was recently played which suggests that china could not yet take taiwan uh, but many others have suggested it could uh, so war is a gamble. Uh, you cannot tell how it will turn out. The enemy gets a vote and you don't know uh, how much of a vote that is until you join the battle. So the one thing we can say is that we ought to be doing everything possible to avoid a war and uh, learning the answer to the question you raise: whether China or the United States would, uh, would prevail. I want to say a few other things, and that is that uh, when we fought the Chinese in Korea, uh, they were just out of a civil war. Uh, They were very backward, uh, and yet they gave a good account of themselves. Um, And they did that because they believed in their cause, which in that case was preserving a buffer state between U.S. forces in South Korea and themselves. In In the intervening, seventy years um, China has changed dramatically. It now wields weapons against which we have no defense. These include um, hypersonic uh, missiles of various sorts that uh, include a, a ballistic missile system that is terminally guided and can therefore strike an aircraft carrier 1,000 miles away from the coast of China. Uh, they include rail guns on Chinese naval vessels which, uh, Uh, We tried to develop and deploy, but we were unable to do. Uh, They include uh, air-to-air missiles, which outrange ours um, by a a margin. And uh, and we are unlikely to know everything we should know about what Chinese capabilities are. So if we do get into a war, there is a fair chance that we're going to get a nasty surprise. Um, If we do get into a war, there is a certainty that we are going to lose the greater part of our naval ve- fleet uh, and a good good chunk of our air force.
0: Well, how would you not, though, in a war, how would it not extend, for example, to a war on the Korean Peninsula and also bringing in uh, Japan?
3: Well, as far as Korea is concerned, um, South Korea has absolutely no interest in getting involved in a U.S.-China war. There is a danger that with the U.S. focused on China, North Korea might see an opportunity to pounce on the South. Uh, But the South is well able to take care of itself, which is why some of us have long questioned why we need the force level in South Korea that we currently have. Uh, South Koreans are a formidable fighting force. Um, As far as Japan is concerned, uh, Japan has a major strategic interest in the status of Taiwan, Uh, it's historically been the platform from which Europeans attacked Japan, the Dutch coming north from their their, uh, holdings in Taiwan to blast their way into treaty ports in Japan way back when. It's also been the jumping off point for Japanese forces. Uh, They attacked the Philippines, Hong Kong and Southeast Asia in 1941 from Taiwan. So it's strategically important, but it's very important to understand that neither Japan nor any other country, not one, has signed on to definitely come to our aid and to join us in a war with China. Everybody wants no war with China. And that is why the cancellation of the Blinken visit to Beijing is so tragic, uh, because without the kind of communication he might have begun. We cannot manage the relationship. And that's what the world wants us to do. They don't want us to go to war with China. They want us to manage it, manage our relationship in such a way that they can benefit from continued peace and greater prosperity.
0: So the trigger, of course, for Blinken canceling the visit was this balloon, which was certainly overplayed by the media here, but what's your understanding of who authorized it on the Chinese side? Was it in any way a provocation in order to have the result, which, which is what happened, the cancellation of this diplomatic mission?
3: Well, I don't know. I, I believe it probably was the uh, Chinese uh, Meteorological Agency, which is the Weather Bureau. Uh, I wouldn't doubt for a minute that other agencies in China including the military, might have put instruments onto it uh, to collect things beyond uh, information about the weather. Um, But what I do, so I don't really know, I do know one thing, and that is it was not deliberate. Um, And uh, if you may recall, I'm speaking to you from uh, New England, Uh, we just had a polar vortex. Uh, This was a shift in in the jet stream, that propelled the balloon with 275 mile per hour winds south uh, and ended up over uh, Idaho and Montana. Um, And uh, there was no way that anyone could foresee this. And even if the balloon had uh, propellers of some sort, there's no way that they could have resisted a wind of this force. So I think this was a surprise, not only to our, our own military who said so, but to the Chinese as well. Um, now, the Chinese should have uh, picked up the phone and told us that they'd lost control of their balloon and it was headed toward us. Uh, but this goes back to the, the fact that we're not communicating effectively anymore. Uh, that kind of, kind of call might have happened once. Um, it's unlikely when we're uh, at daggers drawn.
0: Well, it's certainly not helpful when a U.S. general recently made the statement that a war with China in a couple of years was possible, if not inevitable. I mean, he hasn't been disciplined, has he?
3: Not to my knowledge, but I would say there's a great problem now with message discipline in Washington. Uh, The military seem more and more inclined to offer policy uh, 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 recommendations and to make predictions, which it's really not their province to make in public. Um, and so uh, I think the Biden administration needs to have a good hard look at civilian control of the military.
0: So China's success, which is extraordinary economically, and even though they've built up their military enormously, and you mentioned the weapon systems they have that could devastate the the US Navy and the Air Force if there were to be a war, and nowadays we have a completely different doctrine from the Cold War, the mutually assured destruction doctrine no longer applies. In Ukraine, for example, where Putin is engaged in a conventional war using the threat of nuclear war as, as a kind of shield. So it's not inevitable that nuclear weapons could be used, but just What you described in terms of what the conventional weapons they have are extraordinary and devastating. But still, it's only about 2% of their GDP that they're spending on the military compared to what we are spending. And now, of course, there are calls to spend more. That's the only thing that the Democrats and the Republicans agree on, this military Keynesianism of the defense budget. But to explain or to understand China's rise and success... Has it something to do with the fact that they have planning? You know, everything is so short-sighted and short-term here in the United States, both in, in the business world and in the political world. And my understanding of Chinese leadership and the top cadres is they're, they're largely engineers, whereas our political leadership is largely populated by lawyers. And engineers solve problems and lawyers create problems.
3: Well, I suppose that's true. Um It's certainly the case that the Chinese leadership tends to be largely drawn uh, from the ranks of people, technocrats, really, people who are competent engineers, scientists, mathematicians, and the like. Xi Jinping, by the way, although he has a degree from Tsinghua, the premier engineering school in China, China's MIT, if you will, um, uh, took a PhD in ideology, so he is an exception. Uh, but, um, yes, uh, the Chinese have very successfully uh, developed a form of industrial policy uh, that uh, we used to have. You know, the, the railroads were built as a result of uh, benefits that the federal government conferred on, um, on the railroads. Uh, uh, the aerospace industry was built because the post office... Um, issued an airmail stamp before there were planes to fly mail and thereby set off a race to provide uh, airmail service. Um, The DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been a major force in the planning and development of, of new technology in the U.S. China's developed something a little more, a little different and perhaps more effective than that. Essentially, They issue an order that says uh, to the banks, um, you should give preferential lending to projects which have the following characteristics. And then, but they don't tell anybody how to develop those projects. They basically incentivize the private sector and state enterprises, which are profit seeking, just like the private sector, to come forward with ideas and and to get money uh, to implement them. So they are following very much uh, the model that uh, Deng Xiaoping once uh, described as... crossing the river by feeling the stones. Um, they put something valuable on the other side of the river... and wait for people to come and get it. And this uh, mobilization strategy, if you will, for uh, for industrial development... Um, is now being applied in the Belt and Road Initiative throughout Eurasia and it's been formidably successful. So successful that one of the Biden administration's great boasts is that it has adopted industrial policies uh, to uh, rebuild the semiconductor industry in the United States, for example.
0: Which he of course mentioned in his State of the Union uh, speech last night. So just in closing then, Ambassador Freeman, obviously I hope we're not in a Guns of August situation with China, but as we've discussed, there are you know, powerful forces in this country that are searching for an enemy, and they've found one in China, and diplomacy has been set back with the cancellation of Blinken's visit. What do you hope for in terms of a change here, and what could bring about such a change?
3: Well, I hope the Chinese continue to maintain an open door with the light on in the event that we do want to come and try to work out a new modus vivendi Um, but the obstacles to our doing so are domestic political obstacles the political polarization that has put our governing institutions into gridlock um, the uh, difficulty that we have communicating across party lines generally uh, to the point where families are now divided along uh, party lines. Uh, The development of uh, media, which provide a primitive version of virtual reality as opposed to a direct view of what's really out there. um, So that we misperceive the world to a great extent um, since it's oversimplified and and uh, presented in terms that the people who present it hope the average Joe can understand. Um, So I think in order to recover our diplomatic uh, skill, repair our relationships with the many countries where we now have difficult relations, including China, um, especially China, perhaps, uh, we need to get our own house in order. Um, And the question whether we can do that is something that only the American people can answer. Uh, We have domestic problems that are acute. Uh, We don't agree about our past or our future anymore, and we have different perceptions of the present. We need to reforge some sort of national unity and some sort of, of common purpose, and we need desperately to engage in domestic reform.
0: And the last thing we need is a war with China.
3: It would be devastating to us, to the Chinese, and possibly to the Japanese if they got it dragged in. Uh, And it would certainly be fatal to Taiwan.
0: Well, Ambassador Freeman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with Ambassador Chas Freeman, who's a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defence for International Security Affairs, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defence for his roles in designating a NATO-centred post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He also served as U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as deputy chief of mission and charge d'affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing. And he's the former director of Chinese affairs at the United States Department of State, and he was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972. And he has an article at the American Academy of Diplomacy U.S.-China policy, a case of self-harm. We're going to take a brief station break. and back looking into what Turkey's authoritarian leader will do to stay in power as he shuts down social media sites to blunt criticism of his slow response to the catastrophic earthquakes. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Henri Barkey, who's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and has co-authored and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question with Graham Fuller and Reluctant Neighbour, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Turkey's Turning Point, What Will Erdogan Do to Stay in Power? Welcome to Background Briefing, Henri Barking. Thank you. So as the death toll from the devastating earthquakes in Turkey surpasses 11,000, and it was pretty clear that the critical... 48 hours after the earthquake, uh, very little aid got to where it was needed and there's a lot of criticism in spite of the fact that Erdogan controls the the mainstream press in in Turkey. There's lots of criticism about what happened to all the, the money from the earthquake tax and why didn't the government listen to scientists and seismics and building experts on planning for earthquakes which are frequent in Turkey. And on top of that, of course, Erdogan now has declared a state of emergency and uh, said you can't criticize, it's unseemly to criticize, and the state of emergency doesn't end until just before the election. So he he's the one who's politicizing the situation, isn't
4: he? Well, look, historically speaking, in Turkey, all earthquake uh, tragedies have always been political because ultimately... Uh, people blame somebody, and in this particular case, given that Erdogan has been in power for 20 years, and uh, it's natural that people will blame the government, because they expect the government, A, to quickly bring relief, and two, to have made done a better job of inspecting buildings and ensure that they are compliant with um, uh, earthquake standards. So, th- this is Kind of problematic for Erdogan because uh, he has elections coming up, and these elections are very critical to him. And um, so he's now obviously repressing any type of criticism. You see that Twitter and TikTok now have been either slowed down uh, terribly or banned. It's not very clear. Um, and then pro government journalists, when they hear um, people criticizing the government, either turn off the volume on the television, uh, on the recording machines, or just walk away, and clearly very, very sensitive. And You see that Erdogan is hes, he's usually very much in control of things, and this time he doesn't appear to be so. Um, he, he's really shocked by, by all of this, and hasn't figured out how to, to react to it.
0: But it's fair to say that the first forty-eight hours are critical, and he didn't seem to respond very quickly. Isn't that pretty clear?
4: Yes, I mean he should have <clears throat> he should have come out, I guess, onto all the television networks and said uh, reassure people that 80 is on its way, etc. It doesn't seem to have done that, um, and you know, if, if the the earthquake is way, way, way more devastating than anybody initially conceived, and uh, so I think Erdogan at the beginning may have thought this was going to be, shall we say, a smaller one and, and containable in terms of political damage, and even even uh, you know. He could have worked it to his advantage, but not the scale of the disaster. And unfortunately, I don't think we are anywhere near the final numbers in terms of uh, casualties. And of course, it's not clear whether the government will ever admit to the accurate numbers, but I think people from the region, from what you can hear and see, um, they are very very much upset because in many places, the leaf did not come for a long time. I mean, it took maybe 24 hours in some places, for example, in Khatai, that province which kind of jets into jets into Syria. So um, we'll see. I mean, this, this is very, very damaging to him.
0: So did he declare a state of emergency for political reasons, do you think, to extend it all the way up to the election?
4: Well, it's three months. It just ends with just before the elections. But the the look at some level, I think not, the Turkish government's always declare states of emergency when there is a calamity like this. I think. I mean, I, I would need to go back and look at other. The last big earthquake was 1999. But um, um, I, I wouldn't put that that much into it because the Turkish state at the moment, at uh, least the Erdogan-controlled state, which is all of it, but um, can do whatever it wants. It doesn't need say, a state of emergency to um, clamp down on, on things. What's interesting is that he has already arrested um, people who criticized relief efforts on um, in publicly, so clearly you see a great deal of sensitivity to this issue.
0: Well, your article on Foreign Affairs, Turkey's Turning Point, What Will Erdogan Do to Stay in Power, addresses a lot of uh, what's happening on the foreign policy front. The fact that Turkey's a member of NATO, yet Erdogan is completely on board with Putin, and he's profiting from the war in Ukraine, even though, of course, his, his son-in-law's selling, making a fortune selling drones to Ukraine. Nevertheless, you know, Russian oligarchs and parking their yachts and laundering their money and discounted oil and in general he's also trying to stop Sweden and Finland from joining NATO at the same time getting aid from the Scandinavian countries and the Western European countries who are sending in teams of rescue workers and he's mad at, at Sweden for a Danish character who burned a Koran, which makes no sense at all. So, I mean, in terms of being a NATO ally, how can anybody take him seriously? And what can you do about it?
4: Well, I mean, you raise a number of issues, some of which are related to each other. I mean, first of all, in terms of Ukraine, um, the war in Ukraine, yes, he did. He's selling uh, drones. And look, the Turkish economy is in real bad shape. And he given also the fact that he's going for for the election, he's trying to do everything that he can to support support the economy. I mean, first of all, the Turkish economy got hit by the war like everybody else. I mean, prices of uh, some basic goods have gone up. Inflation is very high in Turkey. The oil prices impacted, obviously, the people at the pump. And so, oh, there are serious costs to to uh, to Turkey, which that other countries also have have had to go through. But in addition, the Turks are very close to Russia in terms of the physical distance. So there's been other uh, they've paid they've had other problems uh, resulting from from the war, loss of trade, etc. So. Under the circumstances, what Erdogan has done is to play both sides, if you want. And, and look, the Ukrainians have been kind of understanding, if you want, uh, of the Erdogan's game because they realize that they need um, at least Turkey to be somewhat neutral. The, the United States is upset because where, where the Turks have gone a little bit too far is to help... The Russian economy, avoid sanctions, etc. Um, but you know, Turkey is also in, uh, needs Putin's approval to for a whole variety of things, and and if Putin were to clamp down on, let's say, Russian tourists going to Turkey or buying uh, or selling oil, although that probably is unlikely. Um, but he can do other damage to economically to Turkey. Uh, but also in Syria, the Turks need um, the Russians, because the Russians are one of the most important players on, on, on the ground, given their relationship with Syria. So the, the United States is... <laughs> will tolerate certain things but not everything and that's why they sent uh, I think an undersecretary from the Treasury Department the other day to Ankara to essentially work with the Turks to see how they can how can they be convinced to reduce the economic um, backdoor support for, for Russia but look at the one, He's trying to get away with anything he can get away with because he's in, he's desperate. I mean, there's high inflation. The central bank coffers are empty. There's a serious um, currency crisis on the way because Turkey's import bill has ex- increased dramatically. Turkish exports are doing very well. Turkish exports are are increasing um, a great deal, but because of the cost of energy going up, and Turkey imports most of its energy, their import bill uh, has shot up, and the current account deficit has been also increasing. So, Erdogan is in real bad shape in that sense, and he has had to negotiate what I call swap deals with the UAE and Saudi Arabia so that those countries park money in the Turkish central bank that looks like the Turkish foreign exchange reserves are higher than they should be, right? So I think I think Adon said the other day, oh, you know, our foreign exchange reserves are great, they're 128 billion, but that's, that's money that's been parked, it's not money that is owned by Turkey. So, um, so you know, he's trying to survive. I mean, look, especially in election year, he's trying to survive. But um, so that's the that, that's the um, shall we say the Russia part, Russia-Ukraine part. On Sweden and Finland, um, I think sometimes Erdogan, you know, even though he thinks of himself as a big strategist, really thinks small. And here he's using Sweden especially to kind of try to show the Europe that, I'm yes. uh, oh, sorry, the Western world that A he's a consequential actor. And, and remember, this is all I'm talking about the period before the earthquake, because the earthquake changes all kinds of calculations now, and it's too soon to figure out what those calculations will be. However, before the earthquake, um, it was clear that on Sweden by showing up toughies and by standing up to to the west he was playing this for the dom- domestic audiences that um, kind of like this kind of uh, shall I say macho uh, bully, uh um, image hence um, what he did was to push the the, the Swedes to kind of expedite a whole series of people who have taken refuge in uh most of them happen to be Kurds, but there are also people that um, are Gulenists. Those are the people that Erdogan blames for organizing the coup. They are the, follow- the followers of his former ally Fethullah Gulen, who happens to live in Pennsylvania at the moment. Um, and but he, then, he, what we don't know, of course, is whether or not the Russians were involved in this, because there was. The, the Quran was burned by this Danish-Swedish um, extreme right-winger in Sweden and in um, Denmark in front of Turkish embassies, deliberately designed to provoke the Turks. And Erdogan decided to use that. He, you know, he could have... I mean, he, he needed to react, that's for sure. However, he could have reacted in a number of different ways. Anyway, to cut a long story short, what he's doing is he's playing, obviously, with Sweden's um, application to go into NATO, and this is really infuriating uh, the rest of the alliance. And, and especially in Washington, I, I, the last few days I had a lot of... Um, American um, officials, uh, well, I say, uh, elected officials, who really are very, very upset about these shenanigans, and he's really undermining himself. Now, the aid that you mentioned that is going to Turkey, look, aid is going to come from everywhere around the world, and it should. I mean, you don't, you don't, just because he's stopping the Swedes let's say from getting into NATO it should not be a reason for the Swedes not to give aid. I mean you give aid when aid is needed. So,
0: so um No I understand that's, that, not gonna, uh, that's
4: not gonna change and that's yeah. not gonna change his attitude. At the moment look he's now he's not thinking about Sweden, he's thinking about what's happening in his own country.
0: Right. Well Bakke, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Right. And again, I've been speaking with Henri Barki, Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University, who is a Senior Fellow in Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He serves as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, Eastern Mediterranean and in intelligence, and has co-authored and authored five books, including Turkey's Kurdish Question with Graham Fuller, Reluctant Neighbour, Turkey's Role in the Middle East, and he has an article on Foreign Affairs, Turkey's Turning Point, What Will Erdogan Do to Stay in Power? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.